Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federal Society's Teleform Conference Call. This afternoon's topic is the Capital Conversations Teleform with Eric Dryban, who is the Assistant Attorney General of the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice. My name is Michael Wallen, and I'm the Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the expert on today's call. After our speaker has an opening remarks portion, we will then move to the audience Q&A. In order to encourage audience participation, we're going to go ahead and open up the audience Q&A floor right here at the beginning of the program. So if a question comes to your mind during Mr. Dryband's remarks, feel free just to push the correct buttons and join the queue. Without further ado, uh, Mr. Dryband, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Micah, and uh, thank you, everyone, uh, for joining us today. I look forward to uh, your questions and uh, doing my best to respond to them. Um, given that the country um, is currently dealing with a very deadly uh, serious and serious public health crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic, I thought what I would do is just start off uh, my remarks today by um, discussing what the Department of Justice is doing, and, and in particular what the Civil Rights Division is doing in conjunction with the United States Attorneys and other law enforcement officials around the country to respond. So I'll, I'll start with um, a memorandum issued by Attorney General William Barr on April 27th. And in that, uh, Attorney General Barr explained uh, that, that, uh, that he wants myself and a United States attorney from the Eastern District of Michigan, Matthew Schneider, to be focused on uh, what he describes as balancing public safety with the preservation um, of civil rights. So the Justice Department is doing many things in the area of the pandemic uh, and, and law enforcement issues that arise as related to that. Of course, my focus is on the civil rights issues related to the pandemic. And so Attorney General Barr on April 27th explained uh, in a document that's available publicly on the Justice Department's website that even in times of emergency, uh, when reasonable and temporary restrictions are placed on rights, uh, the First Amendment and federal statutory law prohibit discrimination against religious institutions and religious believers, and that there are other constitutional and federal statutory protections that continue to be operative during the pandemic. Uh, it certainly is the case that state and local officials, for example, have very broad police power to respond to a very deadly and contagious virus of the sort that we are now dealing with. Um, at the same time, though, the, the Constitution, and in particular the First Amendment, forbids discrimination um, against disfavored speech uh, and undue interference with the national economy. And so Attorney General Barr uh, directed uh, myself and um, U.S. Attorney Matthew Schneider to oversee and coordinate efforts to monitor state and local policies and, if necessary, to take action to correct them. And that is what we have been doing, and we were doing it even before his memo uh, issued, but uh, certainly we've been doing it since. Uh, and we're doing that in a variety of ways. Um, of course, we have ongoing investigations into various civil and criminal cases around the country. Uh, we also uh, are involved and have been involved and will continue to be involved in litigation in the federal courts. And we are also, though, working in, a, in what I regard a very collaborative fashion at times with state and local officials when we 
we have concerns or when United States attorney offices around the country discover uh, certain concerns related to uh, civil liberties and civil rights issues and uh, these typically shelter-in-place type orders, the pandemic, the reopening plans that various state and local jurisdictions are moving towards uh, at this stage of the country's response to the pandemic. And so, by way of example, we filed a statement of interest on behalf of religious worshipers in a couple of cases, one in, in Mississippi, uh, a case where the, there were allegations that uh, the mayor of Greenville, Mississippi, penalized uh, people who were trying to gather, practicing social distancing in their cars in a parking lot with windows rolled up. They were not allowed to leave the car, um, and yet they were cited and fined and so forth. And uh, we filed a statement of interest on behalf of those individuals and expressed uh, concerns about undue and unlawful interference with the free exercise of religion that's protected by the First Amendment. Likewise, uh, more recently in a case uh, called Lighthouse Fellowship Church versus Northam, uh, we filed in support again of the plaintiffs in that case. These were individuals, 16 individuals who were gathered very distantly in a church that had a capacity of 225 people. The authorities moved in, uh, sanctioned the pastor uh, and took other action. Uh, and so we filed in favor again of the, the religious plaintiffs in that case and argued that um, what the state of Virginia was doing, the local authorities were doing by restricting the free exercise of religion uh, raised very serious uh, First Amendment uh, concerns in that case. That, that case is on appeal to the Fourth Circuit. Um, in other areas of the country, we've, we've had success I think working with our colleagues in the United States attorney offices around the country to work with mayors and governors and their staffs when uh, issues have come to the attention of the Department of Justice about whether or not certain kinds of pandemic-related uh, restrictions are appropriate, whether they're being fairly applied. Uh, and so, for example, uh, we, working with the United States attorney Tim Downing in uh, Oklahoma, sent a letter to the mayor of Norman, Oklahoma, after the mayor uh, restricted uh, religious practice in a manner that was not restricted either elsewhere in the state of Oklahoma, nor was were non-religious gatherings restricted in such a similar way. Um, U.S. attorneys around the country working with the Civil Rights Division have focused on many, many other issues related to the pandemic and uh, in everywhere from Mississippi working on Second Amendment issues to Alabama, New York, Nevada, uh, and, and Louisiana, Texas, Massachusetts, Illinois, and elsewhere, and we will continue to do that. So with that, I, I think it was better to stop there, uh, Micah, and I'll just turn the floor back to you. There's one coming through now, so I might have just a delay. So we'll go ahead and move to our first question. Uh, Marianne McGreal, an attorney in D.C. I don't think this falls under the bailiwick of DOJ, but I'm going to ask this question anyway. Do you foresee any problems with extensive contact tracing that would impinge on civil rights? That's an excellent question, Marianne. Um, we don't know. Uh, you know, we don't know where or how any such contract tracing may occur. But, you know, the Fourth Amendment's guarantee against unreasonable search and seizures remains in effect and will be in effect. And so consistent with uh, direction by the attorney general, we will, of course, uh, review any, you know, any kind of policy or practice uh, that, that could involve 
uh, an unlawful invasion of privacy or otherwise violate the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. I'm not saying that will happen. In other words, I'm not saying that any such policy would be unlawful, but we we will, if, if and when that happens, we will look very carefully uh, at whether whatever is being proposed um, you know, is consistent with the Fourth Amendment protections. Having said that, as I mentioned earlier, under our structure of government, uh, the state and local governments do have the general police power. They do have broad authorities, but they cannot act in an arbitrary manner, even in a time of crisis. Uh, and and the, the Bill of Rights and the Fourth Amendment is, I think, relevant to your question, will remain in effect, and we will police that. Mr. Ryman, I wanted to ask you how you viewed uh, sort of the unique challenges that uh, so, like a pandemic has for a nation at large with this many individual states in it. Do you see the DOJ taking sort of an adaptive approach to individual states? Because while while the Bill of Rights, you know, stays firm and should apply equally, it, it seems like in some states and cities there's a much greater need on sort of the side of public health and safety than maybe is seen in other states and cities. Yeah, I mean, the the first of all, the pandemic related to COVID-19 is affecting different places in different ways at different times. You know, there, there has been, as I'm sure everyone on this call knows, you know, a, a very serious, um, you know, spread of the COVID-19 virus uh, throughout New York, New York City in particular, and the New Jersey area, uh, more so than other places. And, and that's inevitable in that the way this virus is acting, um, that different parts of the country will be impacted differently. In a similar way, you know, mayors, uh, city councils, law enforcement generally, governors themselves are taking different approaches. And I think we have to, at the Justice Department, we have to balance different interests here. One is that on, under the Constitution and our federal system, you know, states and, and local jurisdictions do have very broad and very important both power and authority to address emergencies of the public health sort that we are now dealing with as a nation and have been dealing with the last month, several months. Uh, so they, they have a very difficult job to do that, they being mayors, uh, local law enforcement, governors, uh, and other state and local officials. And we are trying to balance respect for that under principles of federalism that, that we operate uh, within at the, both generally, and particularly at the Justice Department, but at the same time, arbitrary acts that are, are not, you know, tethered to dealing with the pandemic uh, that, that impinge upon liberty in this country are things that we are likewise concerned about, and we have a duty, particularly at the Civil Rights Division, and the job that I am in as the uh, Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, to uphold both constitutional protections and federal statutory protections as well. And those have not been repealed. Certainly the Constitution remains in effect. And so we do look at and are hearing from many, many people around the country about allegations that state and local policies or, in fact, practices um, uh, raise concerns about impingement of liberty. And so we, we, we look at them. We try to be respectful as we can and then decide whether and to what extent any action is appropriate. All right. We have a few questions that are lined up now, so we'll go ahead and move to our next question in the queue. This is Jack Lund from Washington, D.C. Uh, some states have banned elective procedures, uh, including abortions. 
Uh, do you have a position on the constitutionality of these orders? The Justice Department has not weighed in on that dispute, um, and the, the, those cases are being litigated, and they are things that we are looking at. So, I, you know, right now, I think I would just say stay tuned for more from the Justice Department on those things. I mean, we do certainly have concerns that any restrictions uh, that are unrelated to an actual response to the virus and the pandemic raise challenges, to put it mildly, and concerns uh, on our part. And, you know, we cannot have a situation in which governments in this country are using the pandemic as a pretext for other other motives or other things. I'm not saying that's what's happening here with elective procedures, but it is something that we are looking at. And before we go to our next question, I actually had, I had a, a follow-up question on that note myself, uh, uh, Eric, and one of them is, I know with California recently, they've sort of moved to reconsider their, their Prop 209. And it's something that isn't directly tied into coronavirus or being used with coronavirus, but it's something which I would say in normal times would be mu- would be hearing much more news and attention. How does the DOD sort of face some of those issues which are going to fly under the radar now purely because priorities have been rearranged? Well, our work continues. I mean, what what I mean, so we are prosecuting civil and criminal cases all over the country on matters completely unrelated to the the pandemic, and we will continue to do that. So, I don't know what California is going to do with Prop 209, um, but I I can speak to what we've done with respect to um, allegations of unlawful racial preferences in higher education, and, and that is we we filed um, in, the, in the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit a few months ago, uh, in, in which we argued that uh, Harvard University's college admissions program violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 because it engages in unlawful racial balancing um, and racial preferences under the statute uh, that disfavor Asian applicants or Asian American applicants. Um, now, again, I'm not speaking to California's proposed repeal of Prop 209, but um, you know, the use of race in this country is something that is extremely limited in terms of the permissible use of race, I should say, as a matter of law. And so we will look very carefully and scrutinize very carefully any attempt to inject race into uh, decision-making that disfavors one group of people and favors others because of their race, and, and that including in higher education. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Um, we'll now go to our next caller in the queue. If anyone would like to join and ask a question of our speaker, just press star and then pound. Ed Hyman McKeer in uh, Texas. Um, I'd like to question you about the Section 4 of Article 4 of the U.S. Constitution, uh, where it uh, says the United States are guaranteed uh, a republican form of government in every state. And uh, that's quite clearly is, uh, requires a division of powers with uh, the power to make law reserved exclusively for the legislature. Uh, and our text constitution is even quite specific. Uh, you know, emphatic about this uh, separation of powers. And uh, yet we have a governor who claims that uh, who sh- should have read the Constitution, should know that even if a s- statutory law enacted by the legislature says so, he cannot make an issue dictates to carry the force of law. I mean, that, that turns our whole system into a dictatorship. 
Um, so uh, I'm wondering where the federal government is, uh, why they uh, you don't step in and tell our governor that, hey, look, you can't do that. You can call the legislature in the session. They can make some laws to address this, but you can't issue dictates, nor can county attorney, uh, you know, I mean, the, the head of a county, but that's what's happening here. Um, so what's your thoughts on that? Okay, you raise an excellent point. Uh, let me respond to that first of all. The uh, I, I agree uh, as a matter of principle and what Article Four of the Constitution says about guaranteeing a Republican form of government, and and what we've seen and what we what, what we have seen uh, is is what you have described. Uh, now, you, uh, a couple of things about that. One. Uh, when governors or other officials overstep their bounds, what we so far have seen as a general matter is that state courts are, are approaching these kinds of action more skeptically than the federal courts, number one. So, for example, uh, a week or two ago, the Wisconsin Supreme Court uh, took the position that these, these kind of dictates that were being issued, not by the governor in that case, but like some state public health official, were unauthorized by Wisconsin law and, and did exactly what you say, which is uh, they ran contrary to our concept of legislative bodies as rulemaking bodies, that is, the law being made by a state legislature or the Congress of the United States, as the case may be. Secondly, there are times when state legislatures have authorized governors and other executive officials in a state in an emergency to issue uh, emergency orders of the sort that we've seen since the COVID-19 pandemic developed. Usually, those state statutes are time-limited, you know, limited to 30 days, 60 days, maybe 90 days at the most. And I think where we have concerns and where courts have had concerns is when governors or other executive branch officials issue an order under a state statute that authorizes them to act, say, for a 30-day period or something of that nature, and then the 30-day period expires, and they just keep doing it anyway. They keep issuing new orders. There are two questions there. One is, do those orders violate state law? Uh, if they do, what we're seeing is the state courts are declaring those orders null and void at times. Sometimes governors and mayors will say that the, that the state constitution or other similar broader law within their state uh, gives them inherent power to act that way. And that's really a matter of state law. Now, at the federal level, in terms of the federal-state relationships under, under our principles of federalism, I think there are three provisions that are relevant to the question. One is the guarantee clause, that is that the United States shall guarantee a Republican form of government in each state, and that's exactly what you mentioned. There's also the Commerce Clause. Um, of Article One of the Constitution that limits the authority to regulate commerce among the several states to the Congress of the United States. And then there's the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause. Uh, and, and the question, I think, which is that you know, no state shall deny any person life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And so we are looking, let me cl be clear, we have, we have already, and a lot of this is not in the public view, but we have already worked with several governors and mayors in a non-litigation forum to express the concerns we have uh, about what they have been doing. And we have, at least in some states, and um, Mississippi, uh, Alabama, Nevada, Louisiana, and others, Massachusetts, we have gotten, uh, and, and, and through working with governors and others in their, those states, Missouri's another one, Wyoming's another one, 
where we have gotten, uh, we're persuaded that without litigation that local officials to take a, a different course than they've been taking. Uh, we are also looking at and will continue to look at whether it is appropriate for the Justice Department to weigh in in the courts of the United States, and we will continue to do that. All right. We'll now move to our next question. Hello, this is Alan Abramowitz calling from Florida. Um, as different states have different degrees of lockdown, uh, either stay at home or safer at home, uh, is there any concern coming up to the election there might be states trying to limit political rallies or uh, creating freedom of association issues and as a pretext to not have rallies? And just curious if the Justice Department would weigh in on something like that. Uh, hey, Alan. Uh, yeah, um, there are concerns like that. There is a case now headed to the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit that involves that very kind of claim. We are looking at that case about whether it's appropriate for us to weigh in. So, uh, you know, we haven't made it come to a judgment in that case yet. And, but this is a very difficult question because under a 1905 Supreme Court case and other subsequent cases, the Supreme Court has interpreted the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, the Constitution generally, to authorize state and local governments to infringe upon what would otherwise be um, rights of the sort you described, Alan, uh, like right to assemble, right, right to do, you know, even exercise religion at times, uh, to deal with, uh, in that case, there were questions or concerns about mandatory vaccinations in response to um, a very contagious uh, smallpox outbreak. So under existing law, state and local governments have very broad police power to deal with these problems, but they, are, they cannot act in an arbitrary manner. And if they do, uh, they could and may violate the Constitution or other federal statutory protections. And if they do, uh, we will weigh in and take appropriate action. And, and that, which is similar to what we've already been doing, but uh, we will continue looking at this. And of course, as the pandemic changes, the, 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 the authority that would normally be granted in a state of you know, heightened emergency may change with it and, and likely will. I mean, our hope, I think, as a nation for all of us is that the threat of the COVID-19 pandemic and the spread of the virus diminishes over time and that we get back to normal here. Uh, but right now, you know, there, there is some uncertainty about, I think, the authority of state and local governments to continue the kind of shelter-in-place requirements, the restrictions on liberty that we've seen the last few months. Uh, and to the earlier caller's question, the authority of them to do it without being authorized by their state legislature as well. Those are, those are becoming more and more difficult questions the longer this goes. Um, and it is, thing, it is something that we are uh, looking at carefully and carefully scrutinizing state and local practices and, and policies with respect to these issues and working with state and local governments where we can outside of the courtroom, but we're certainly willing to go into court and as we've done and will continue to do where appropriate. We'll now move to our next question in the queue. Oh, hello. Um, uh, Roland Machand, attorney in New York City. Uh, nice to meet you, sir. Um, nearly every single department of the DOJ has an email address. Uh, for example, the OPR, Special Litigation, Antitrust. So what is the email address to submit complaints, tips, for civil rights violations? That's the first quick question. The second question is a little bit more involved. Uh, how is the Civil Rights Division dealing with or handling complaints <clears throat> against uh, unscrupulous, out-of-control civil rights violating federal judges, law clerks, assistant U.S. attorneys, police officers, or federal agents within the DOJ or DHS that have been given higher, more augmented powers under the Patriot Act or NDAA 
and one constitutionally abused that increased power against U.S. citizens or green card holders, particularly in, say, New York City, where liberal Democrat minority-owned government workers constantly and routinely target or deprive white or conservative U.S. citizens of their civil liberties or constitutional rights. So it's sort of a reverse race that goes on in New York City, in a sense, because uh, you know, whites tend to be, or conservatives tend to be a minority in New York City, they tend to be a lot more, and I, as a civil rights attorney, I see this uh, targeted uh, by minorities in government power, federal or state or local. Uh, are they treated the same way? I, I rarely see cases that are prosecuted like that. It seems to be a problem in New York City. Thank you. Oh, okay, so I'll make sure. I'll, I'll try to respond as best I can to both points. So on how to file a complaint or uh, otherwise uh, contact the Civil Rights Division, I would encourage anyone listening to go to the Justice Department's website, which is www.justice.gov slash CRT. That's the Civil Rights Division's website. And depending on the kind of concern or complaint, there may be different ways to contact the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. Uh, so, for example, if someone were concerned about, uh, by way of example, sexual harassment housing, there's information about our sexual harassment housing initiative on our website. Or the, each of our the Civil Rights Division is divided into 11 sections uh, by jurisdiction, enforcement, criminal uh, section, uh, employment litigation section, things of that sort. So it depends on the area. And, and I would navigate the website there. Uh, and and there, there's information about that or hate crimes or other things, just depending on what the, the concern is. Now, with respect to the second part, and I, I think I understood the question. I'll do my best to respond to it. If, um, the question is, you know, what happens when, as I understood it, State and local officials uh, engage in what the caller described as discrimination against white people. I think was the, if I, or you know, or, or favoring certain races over the over others. So I, I hope I'm characterizing the question correctly because it was a long question. I tried to follow, but may have missed some nuance there. So let me let me address that. Um, the use of race by state and local governmental officials is extremely limited in terms of what is permitted as a matter of law and depending on the context may be prohibited entirely. So um, usually the use of race by a state and local official is governed by the highest standard of review under constitutional law, the so-called strict scrutiny standard of review. I mentioned earlier a case involving Harvard College in which we uh, filed our position both in the federal district court and in the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit in which we uh, expressed the view that what Harvard College is doing uh, violated um, the civil rights protections, which are essentially strict scrutiny protections uh, through a statute called Title VI of the Civil Rights Act in which they were favoring uh, certain racial groups and disfavoring others so-called reverse discrimination, in, in a sense, was it issue, is an issue in that case, it's, which is still pending. You know, we do not uh, in any way tolerate the unlawful use of race by anyone in this country, and especially um, state and local government officials. And if, we, if and when we become aware of, of the use of race in such a prohibitive way, we 
we'll both in, initially investigate such a claim, and if the claim proves to be meritorious, we'll bring a appropriate action in federal court if we can't settle the dispute and, get, and persuade the state or local jurisdiction to change course. Um, having said that, the Civil Rights Division historically has not brought a lot of cases of this nature, and um, uh, it is something that, that we are focused on and that I have a team of people looking at, though. So uh, with that, I'll take the next question. All right, we'll move to the next question in the queue. Hi, this is George May, attorney in Houston, Texas. By the way, we're not under a dictatorship. Um, as the previous Texas caller said, we're still a republic. Uh, I have just a general question. Uh, I understand that the role of the Department of Justice is to um, protect the interests that we derive from the Bill of Rights, but is there any affirmative role that the Department of Justice can take or is taking to support uh, governors and local officials in the exercise of, of their police powers in this emergency? Yeah, George, that's a good question. Um, I mean, we we have been working, I mean, it, the answer is yes. So we've been working, I, mean, I, I can only speak to what I'm doing in the Civil Rights Division. So there are other parts of the Justice Department, for example, that are taking action when, uh, let me give you an example, um, when uh, there are allegations of people who are hoarding scarce medical resources or selling them for extortionate prices, defrauding people who are in dire circumstances due to the, the severe problems uh, caused by the pandemic, you know, things of that sort that where, you know, other components of the Justice Department, including the United States Attorney's Office around the country, are pursuing them um, civilly and in some cases criminally. Now, with respect to working, though, in a positive way to support governors and mayors and so forth, yes is the answer in a, in a sense. And let me explain what I mean by that. As I said earlier, state and local governments under our structure have very broad police power. And we are doing our best to be respectful of the broad police powers that they have. They have a very difficult job to do in, the, in each state, each jurisdiction in the country to deal with what is, at least in our lifetimes, an unprecedented public health crisis. So that's why we are trying to the extent we can, when we see issues that we think implicate uh, federal law enforcement concerns uh, as a result of pandemic-related issues, uh, policies at the local and state level, for example, we initially try to work directly and very often outside the public view with mayors and governors directly and explain our concerns to them either in a letter with a follow-up via phone call and things like that. And what we found so far is that as a general matter, uh, when local officials, including governors, have become aware of the concerns that we have, that we're able to work in a very positive way with them to avoid litigation and to make adjustments to what they've been doing in a way that that uh, that you know complies with uh, the Constitution and other federal laws that we enforce. Um, so that's primary. I mean, we're just as far as a law enforcement um, agency, uh, and and so you know we're not as a general matter in the in the role of say grant making. I mean, we do have a grant making office at the, called the Office of Justice Programs that, that I, I I don't. I mean, that's a, headed by a separate person. But outside of that, the Justice Department primarily is law enforcement. And so 
what we've been trying to do is rather than always coming in with the heavy hammer of, you know, we'll see you in court, we're going to sue you or something of that sort, we've been trying uh, to, to take a mix of approaches depending on what the circumstances call for and, and start out initially with a presumption that we try to work something out without litigation. All right. We'll now move to our next question in the queue. Uh, good afternoon. This is Quinn Boo from, from Washington, D.C. Um, are you aware of any pending litigation um, that challenges the use of mail-in voting or ballot harvesting with it, it, that is justified uh, by the pandemic? And if, if not, um, is the department proposing or planning to um, undertake affirmative litigation to prevent mail-in voting or ballot harvesting in this um, fall federal election? Okay, so let me. That's a good question. Uh, there are many proposals around the country that deal both with mail-in uh, voting and ballot harvesting. Uh, the at the and so we we are aware of those proposals. We are looking at them and and we are aware of litigation about them. So we there are the different components of justice department deal with voting issues. There is a division of the justice department called the criminal division. And the public integrity section, the criminal division, is the, is the component of the Justice Department that primarily addresses allegations of voter fraud or other voting irregularities that, that may occur in terms of, say, election integrity. The, so I work with, with the head of the criminal division on, and, and I, I, there's a section of the civil rights division called the voting section, where we enforce in the civil rights division, like civil rights laws, like the Voting Rights Act, that relate to mail, you know, is to your question, mail-in ballots and ballot harvesting. From the standpoint of the Civil Rights Division, we because of the statutes we enforce, there, there's always been forms of mail-in ballots. Let me start with that one. But, th but those have been usually a very small minority of the number of ballots cast in elections. You know, overseas ballots, people absentee ballots, things of that sort that have been done via mail. Because of the pandemic, there are many, many proposals and considerations to much broader mail-in ballots and ballot harvesting than in prior elections. With respect to whether or not there are issues of voter fraud related to those practices, that's within the purview of the criminal division's public integrity section. With respect to whether or not there are allegations um, that those practices uh, relate to civil rights violations, um, those are within the jurisdiction of the Civil Rights Division. So recently, uh, we we weighed in in a case pending in the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, in which we argued that the state of Arizona's limitations on ballot harvesting were, in fact, lawful under the Voting Rights Act. And we will continue to litigate those cases as appropriate as, as, uh, as the year unfolds. But it is something that many, many people at the Justice Department are continuing to review very carefully, especially, as I say, in the public integrity section of the criminal division. All right. We have reached the end of our question queues. As a final question for myself, uh, Mr. Dryman, I'll ask, uh, is there anything that you would like FedSoc members to know, or, or what can FedSoc members be doing to assist uh, the D DOJ and yourself in this work in these various issues we've touched on today? You know, that's that's an excellent question, Mike. I, first of all, let me add, um, it, so I don't forget to say it, thank you again to everyone for taking the time to listen to me today and to join us today. I think I, what I would suggest is that 
anybody, whether in Washington, D.C. or Texas or New York, wherever around the country, if, if, there are, if you have concerns that uh, the way the government, that is state, local, or even federal government, are responding to the pandemic of the sort that some of the callers have expressed in, you know, in different ways on this call, I would encourage you both to look at the Civil Rights Division's website about how to raise these concerns. There's information on there about how to navigate them, but also to contact local United States attorney offices because the local United States attorney offices are working with me and with others in the Civil Rights Division to review, to examine practices and, and policies that state and local governments in particular are, are enacting and acting upon to deal with the pandemic. And you know, there are times when uh, you know, a U.S. attorney's office, for example, becomes aware of something in a state and, we, and brings it to my attention or that of some of the team of people I have working with me in Washington. And we, we work through it and we th- try to come up with ways that we can respond to the, the problem that, that a member of the public may, may be identifying. And so that's, that's, I think, the best thing that I think would be particularly helpful right now, Mike. All right. Well, no other questions from our audience. So I'll offer one last chance. Is there anything you wanted to say to wrap up or anything else you wanted to say before I close us out? The only thing I'll say, Mike, is I think that um, two things. One, you know, we have, as everyone on this call knows, a a public health uh, crisis that is unprecedented, probably since the Spanish flu 100 years ago, but certainly in, in my lifetime anyway. And this is causing a lot of pain and suffering on behalf of a lot of people, both those infected with the COVID-19 virus, those who have died from it and have otherwise suffered health effects of it, but also the, the, the tragedy of what we've seen with the effect that this thing is having on our economy. At the same time, though, I, I think it's been inspiring to see the American people respond to this in such a, a positive way. People, generally speaking, are, are being careful. I mean, there are exceptions in a country of 300 million people, but people generally are responding in a very careful way, a very deliberate way, and at times uh, are, I think, being zealous about holding public officials to account if and when, as, it can, as happens, nobody's perfect, but if and when government responds in a way that is overzealous, or arbitrary, or otherwise unwarranted. So I would just ask everyone to to uh, have respect for the difficult jobs that many public officials have, but also to commend everyone on this call and people around the country for what at least I regard as uh, overall, not perfect, but a, a response to the pandemic as well as a response to civil liberties and civil rights issues that I think will enable us to, as a country to emerge from the crisis with our principles intact. All right. Well, on behalf of the Federalist Society, I'd like to thank uh, our expert for the benefit of his valuable time and expertise today. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at Thank you to all for joining us. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.